I want to uh, back up a little bit tonight in our series on the fruit of the Spirit and go back and look at the lust of the flesh that wars against the fruit of the Spirit. For if we don't understand and recognize those things that are battling for control of our lives, then we will never fully understand how we can get victory over that. There's an old saying. The saying is, war is hell. But in light of what Jesus said about hell, war is bad and it's very distasteful. Lives are broken and lives are lost and dreams are shattered. But one thing about war is it comes to an end. But Simon Peter said there is a war of lust, fleshly lust that wage war against your soul. And in pastoring and ministering and talking to people, one of the things I've discovered is a lot of people try to justify these deeds. They say, oh, I can handle it, or it's not a big problem, or I have it under control. And yet the scriptures say it's a war, and if you're not winning the war under the control of the Holy Spirit, you're losing the war even if you think you're winning it. These are issues that we have to face, and in fact these sins really divide into three categories. And when Peter talks about this lust of the flesh and this warring of the flesh, he not only talks about hand-to-hand -hand combat, he's referring to a planned campaign and strategy of the enemy. Now somewhere in your notes, right at the first, there should be a quote from Wiest from his word studies, which says simply this, when the flesh presses hard upon the believer with its evil behest, the Holy Spirit is there to oppose the flesh and give the believer victory over it in order that the believer will not obey the flesh and thus sin. The choice lies with the saint. The will of the believer is absolutely free from the compelling power of the evil nature. If he obeys the latter, it is because he chooses to do so. Look with me, if you would, at Galatians 5 and verse 16. Galatians 5 and verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Now the desire of the flesh is the inward motion of the soul. It is the natural tendency of man to respond to his fallen nature, to respond to evil and that which is forbidden. But he continues in verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. There's a great tug of war going on, so that you may not do the things that you please. Now the only way you and I are going to get victory over this flesh pull that's on us is under the lordship of Christ and the leadership of his spirit. Only when we live under the lordship of Christ and the leadership of his spirit do we find victory over the flesh. Look at chapter 5 and verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh 
are evident. They're obvious. They're manifest. They're on display. They are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In other words, Paul just ran out of words. He just said anything that falls under that category. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice, the desire of the flesh, these are the natural tendencies. The deeds of the flesh or the works of the flesh are those desires set in motion. Those desires acted on. Those desires expressed. They are tangible expressions of the desires. We can stop it at the desire. But if we choose to tangibly express it, those become the deeds of the flesh. While the desires of the flesh may be hidden, the deeds of the flesh are obvious, are manifest. In other words, these evils are active, not passive. These are active and not passive. There is a battle going on, and the flesh is wanting to have its way and to control and to dominate our lives. Now, when God saved you, He did not tune up your old man. He gave you a brand new nature because your old nature was so sorry he couldn't do anything with it. So he just said, forget about that. I'm going to give you a new nature. But there is a battle that goes on within us in our flesh. You say, now, I, you know, I kind of look at that list and you know, most of those things on that list I'm not guilty of. But everything on that list you are capable of. You may not be guilty of it, but you are capable of it. In other words, saying, I would never do that may be one step away from, I can't believe I did it. These are evident, they're manifest, and there's a checklist for us, and they fall in three categories. First of all, sensual sins. Now, the first one that he gives is immorality, then impurity, then sensuality. The first is a specific sin. The second is a general condition of impurity. And the third is total disregard for any kind of dignity. So he says, first of all, immorality or fornication. The word is pornea. It is any kind of sexual vice. Let me just give you some references for time, and you write these down. 1 Corinthians 6.13, The body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Ephesians 5.3, But fornication and all uncleanliness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as become saints. Revelation lists immorality along with murder and sorcery and theft. It is a violation of the seventh commandment. Number two, impurity. This is a sin of the mind. Sensual thoughts, impure thinking. Now this is not very pleasant to think about, but the image in the word impurity is referring to that pus that oozes from an unclean wound. Another image of impurity is a soiled life that makes one unable to approach his or her God. Impurity, the attitude that will ultimately lead to the deed. Number three, 
sensuality. The word sensuality refers to a complete lack of restraint. No holes barred. The Greek conveys the idea of someone that has gone so far, they don't care what anybody thinks anymore. They live however they want to live. They have no restraint. They are arrogant. They are loud. They are shameless. They are past feelings. And even if confronted with their sin, they don't care that they are sinning. The person of sensuality, immorality, impurity, and sensuality fall under the category of sensual sins. Now he goes into two religious sins. The religious sins are, first of all, idolatry, a devotion to idols. Now, we sweep this one under the rug. We say, well, you know, last time I checked, I've, I've driven over a lot of Albany. Last time I've checked, I, I haven't seen any altars to Baal. Right. But you've seen some idols parked in garages. In fact, some people have addresses on their idols. Some people wear their idolatry. You see, idolatry is anything that you give more allegiance and loyalty to than you do Jesus Christ. Anything that you put on a platform and a pedestal above your relationship to Jesus Christ is in fact an idol in your life. Some of our idols have tinted glass. Some of our idols have power steering. Some of our idols can go across a lake at a fast rate of speed. Some of our idols we live in, some of our idols we vacation to, we all have the tendency toward idolatry because idolatry gives us the pleasure of something we can give our affections to that we can see and feel and touch. And Paul says these deeds are evident. Idolatry is still a problem in America today. Although we do not have the problem as they had it. Sometimes it's the latest gadget. Sometimes it's the newest technology. Whatever it is, it is just as much a work of the flesh as fornication. Say, well, I've never committed fornication. I've never been involved in sensuality. I care about what people think. But if you love something you have, it has you. And if it has you, it's an idol. Number two, not only idolatry, but sorcery. This word is pharmakia. It's the derivative of the English word where we get our English word pharmacy. The biblical word refers to drugs. It refers to spells. It refers, refers to spells accompanied by chants. It is a reference to appealing to the spirit of the dead. It refers to rulers of darkness. Well, what's sorcery got to do with anything? Oh, the New Age movement, channeling, your little rocks that you buy to relate to, reading your horoscope. That's a deed of the flesh. You know, I could write a horoscope about you, and I'd probably have a good chance of being right as long as you just keep it general enough. You'll meet someone nice today. Wow. Unless you stay home all day, you probably will. And then I could go down to Capricorn. You'll meet a lot of real jerks today. And you probably will. It is the appeal to the supernatural on the evil level. Drugs, chanting. Uh, I, did, I did a camp this past week. We had uh, four kids in a room and they, we were having a meeting, it was about 1.15 in the morning, and uh, somebody came in and said, 
all these guys and gals, they're having this problem. So we went down there and come to find out that these four girls were trying to speak to a dead spirit. Kids raised in the church, Sunday morning, Sunday night kind of kids. They're trying to conjure up the spirit of a dead person. You know what? That's not only stupid, it's the work of the flesh. It's the appeal of the flesh that says, I want to get into something that I know I'm not supposed to get into. I can tell you this, folks. I've done enough dealings with spiritual warfare to tell you one thing. You better not go there. You don't even want to find out what you discover on the dark side of this world because it is wicked and it is vile and it is evil. By the way, just as a side note, this has nothing to do with the works of the flesh. I just wonder how your prayer life's doing for your church. You probably don't know we have a witch's coven that prays against Sherwood Baptist Church every Monday night in this town, do you? You probably are not aware that we have people making animal sacrifices for the destruction of this church, but they are. We know about it. How's your prayer life? For people who are conjuring up all the evil things in this world and trying to bring the forces of evil against this church, how's your prayer life for the things that the devil is trying to do? Well, that's too convicting, so let's go on. Religious sins, social sins. Enmities, the opposite of love. These are expressions of hostility toward others. This is an attitude that is filled with hatred. It's impatience, it's jealousy, it's unkindness, it's boastfulness, it's arrogance. It's a person who insists on their own ways. Leroy Iams says, hate bears nothing, believes nothing, hopes for nothing, and endures nothing. Now, in this particular term, Paul uses the plural. For what he wants to tell us is, is if hatred and enmity is in control of your life, it affects everything else you do. If hate gets control, it affects everything and touches everybody. Number two, strife, contention. It means a debating spirit or a quarrelsome attitude. The argumentative life a challenging spirit, a confrontational spirit, the very opposite of what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 4, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Now, hatred is the attitude. Strife is the action. Out of hatred comes a person who commits deeds of strife. It is the hateful heart that has the actions of strife. And so Paul says that when a person hates, it affects everything they do. What does that mean? It means they stir up strife. By the way, anybody that stirs up strife has a hateful spirit. Doesn't matter who it is. If you stir up strife, it's a hateful spirit. It is a deed of the flesh. Now you can say it's justified. The scripture doesn't give that option. Hey, I didn't write the book. I just tell you what it says. The book says 
It doesn't give that option. By the way, just, just a little side note. I got a call today from one of the funeral homes in town and about some folks in our church that had passed away. And so they called me back a little while later, and one of the guys at the funeral home uh, said, uh, said, now, he said, you're Dr. Cat, right? I said, well, yeah, I guess so, huh? yeah. Got a couple of degrees that say that. He said, oh. He said, well, he said, uh, every time we lift your, list your name as doing a service in an obituary column, two of the members of your church call me and say he's about as much a doctor as he is a man on the moon. He's no more of a doctor than I am. I said, well, number one, tell him to come by my office and I'll pull the degrees out and I'll show it to him. I said, number two, ask him if they got anything better to do with their time. Because I obviously use mine to get a degree. They need to use theirs to get a life. <laughs> if I ain't got anything better to do than call the funeral home about who's preaching a sermon, I need a life or I need to go to the funeral home. <laughs> just my opinion. That's all, just sharing my opinion. <laughs> Number three, jealousy. Jealousy. The spirit that burns with a desire to reign on somebody. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5 says, Be content with such things as you have. Jealousy smolders in the heart. It's the result of anger that someone has something that you want. You know anybody that's jealous? You know anybody that wants something that somebody else has, that has that smoldering, burning desire to stop anybody else from having something like that? Number four, outburst of anger, wrath losing your temper, flying into a rage. This is a major source of domestic violence and church fights and abuse. Wrath, outburst of anger. Number five, now number five through seven, although they are social sins, you could very well say if you've been in the church any length of time at all in America, that these are the sources of most church fights. Number one, actually number five, but it's number one in this list of three, disputes. Disputes. Now, what does the word disputes mean? It means factions. Insisting on a way, and the Greek implies looking for followers. Insisting on creating a group or a faction, self-seeking, excessive, and going after a following to help me get my faction up. Now, how many of you have ever been to church where there's been a faction? It's a work of the flesh. Where the Spirit of Christ is, there is unity and there is love. Doesn't mean everything's perfect. It just means there's unity and there's love. Anytime you see anybody trying to start a faction, just mark it down. It's not of God. It's of the flesh. It's never of God. No excuse, no reason, no possible motivation can ever say that a dispute or a faction is of God. Number six, dissensions. Now the word dissensions is an interesting word. It means to stand as a separate division. To stand as a separate division or to stand apart or to choose sides. Factions, disputes, lead to dissensions, which is a division. It's a choosing up of sides. And yet the scripture says we are to be of one mind striving together for the faith. 
Now, if we're to be of one mind striving together for the faith, and if this mind which was in Christ Jesus is supposed to be in us, and we're supposed to be servants, and our goal is to fulfill the Great Commission, and our goal is to fulfill the Great Commandment, then what in the world does disputes and factions have to do with the gospel and the purpose of the church? And yet, you will find many churches that are destroyed or deteriorating because of disputes and dissensions on the inside. It leads to the next one. The next one, factions. Now, he comes right down to the word here, and that word is the word for heresy. Heresy. And this is a choosing or selecting on the basis of preference or false doctrine. A choosing or selecting on the basis of preference or false doctrine. And what happens here is it leads to a moral collapse a moral collapse in the church. For you see, when the false teacher has completed their work, the church is left in ruins. And so there are disputes and dissensions and factions. Number eight, envying. The word envying is always used in a bad sense in the New Testament. The root means ill will, to wish ill will on another person. Proverbs chapter 14 calls envying the rottenness of the bones to want ill will on another person. I'm going to tell you something, folks. No matter what anybody's ever done to you, it's not right to wish ill will on them. I don't care what they've said to you. I don't care what they've done to you. It's not right to wish ill will on them. That is a work of the flesh. That is not love and joy and peace and self-control and patience and kindness. And boy, it's easy, isn't it? I'm going to tell you something, just, just my humble and accurate opinion, which I highly respect. Talk radio has too much input into the church. Everybody gets on talk radio and states their opinion, and Rush Limbaugh states his opinion. I like Rush Limbaugh. I don't have anything against Rush Limbaugh, but I'm going to tell you this. It has infected us in the last four to five years in the Church of Jesus Christ where we have people who are downplaying people in positions of authority, including the president and other people, and we think we've all got a right to do that and wish ill will on I've heard Christians say, I wish somebody would kill Bill Clinton. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That deserves altar repentance. I don't care what the man's done. To wish ill on anybody, whether it's to wish that homosexuals would be consumed with aid or to wish that someone would be caught in some situation that would suck them down and pull them down or to wish ill will in any way is a work and a deed of the flesh and it has no place in the body of Christ. We are not to be a part of that kind of thinking. And what happens to us is we get classified as the religious right with being extremists who are interested in hurting other people rather than bringing people to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our call is not to hurt. Our call is to help. Our call is not to throw bricks. Our call is to lift up the cross. And we have missed the point if somehow in trying to be the moral majority and the religious right, we think we can cast aspersions and ill will and wish God knows what on people's lives and say we're all doing it because we're Christians. No, we're doing it because it's our flesh. It's what our flesh wants. 
you and I both know that our flesh sometimes wants what is opposite to what our spirit is supposed to want. And so there are envyings. And then drunkenness, pretty self-explanatory. Proverbs 20 and verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. Whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Carousing. Now, the word carousing means reviling. It implies letting loose. Let me just read you Thayer's Greek-English lexicon. This is a long definition of carousing. A nocturnal and riotous procession of half-drunken and frolicsome fellows who after supper parade through the streets with torches and music in honor of Bacchus or some other deity and sing and play before the houses of their male and female friends. Now, let me take that out of Thayer's Greek-English lexicon and put it in terms you can understand. Party hardy. <laughs> Party till you puke. Dancing in the streets. Let's just go crazy. Let's just get wild. No restraints. Just let it rip. That's carousing. You ever been out? I know none of you have ever done this. You ever been out on a Friday night or a Saturday night and seen a group of people carousing? They're an impressive lot, aren't they? I mean, these are people of whom the world is not worthy. You know, hey, hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. I mean, and they're just, it's just all over them. I mean, nobody, ever has to nobody ever has to say, I'm carousing. You already know it. Drunkenness, carousing, public drunken parties and orgies. This is what was common in the worship of Baal. And Paul says this is not what the church is supposed to be a part of. Now, verse 21, the last part, I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word practice means to continually practice. Those who continually do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Say, well, you know, I had ill will towards somebody. Is that your continual practice? You know, I have, I have envying towards somebody. Is that your continual practice? I have hatred, I have enmity towards somebody. Is, is that your continual practice? Is that the way you continually operate? Is that the way you continually think? I'll give you a great Vance Havner quote. This is one worth writing down. A sheep may fall in a mud hole, but he won't stay there. A sheep may fall in a mud hole, but he won't stay there. If you're one of God's sheep, there are going to be times when walking along in life, you're going to stumble and you're going to fall and you're going to end up in a mud hole, but you know you won't stay there. Now, if you're a pig, you will. 
because that's the natural habitation of pigs, is a mud hole. I mean, you can clean up a pig. I watched Green Acres when I was growing up. I know Arnold had a bow tied around his neck. I know the movie Babe was all real cute and everything, and Babe was this wonderful little animal and all this kind of stuff, but I'm going to tell you, you could spray polo on them until they look like a bottle of polo, but you let them loose, and they're going to the pigsty. And they're going to wallow and roll in mud and garbage and slop. Take all your food that's left over from the last two weeks and throw it out there in a hole and put a pig loose and that pig will wallow in it. Why? Because it's the pig's nature. Now go out there and throw a sheep in it. The sheep would just kind of get up and go, ooh, <laughs> ooh. Because it's not the sheep's nature. Another great Vance Havner illustration. He said, when I see a bird that looks like a duck, and walks like a duck, talks like a duck, and goes places where ducks go and does the things that ducks do, I make one assumption. That bird is a duck. <laughs> he said, when I see a Christian who looks like the world and acts like the world and talks like the world and goes places where the world goes, I... I just make one assumption. That brother is of the world. Those who practice such things. You see, the way you know you're saved is when you do those things, you hate it. Because you know it's not evident of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Now, what's God's solution? Well, we've looked at one of them this morning, but let's go back to verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. One of the greatest statements I ever heard in my life is Paul says, you know, in, in Romans chapter 12, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The problem with the living sacrifice is we keep getting off the altar. We lay down, oh God, yes, I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to crucify myself. I'm going to die to myself. And then we get up off the altar and we appeal, to, we feed our flesh. We go after it. I want to give you three reminders from last week. Number one, God's power cancels your past. God's power cancels your past. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Remember, it's not so much what I'm supposed to do, but how I'm supposed to do it. And it's not so much that I know, but I need the power to do it. So God's power cancels your past. Number two, God's power conquers your problems. We are more than conquerors, super conquerors through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God's power will change your personality. See, if you feed the flesh, you'll starve the spirit. You say, well, you know, there's a couple of things on that list. You know, I, I got to admit, they're, I wouldn't say I practice them, but I'm sure guilty of some of them on an occasional repetitive basis. I don't practice them, but most weeks I'm found guilty of those things. I'll give you an illustration that bears repeating. I used this illustration three or four years ago. It's one of my favorite youth camp illustrations. Remember Moses and the plagues? This way means yes, this way. Remember Moses and the plagues? Good. 
Some of you are going, Moses, plagues. I thought he was on the ark. No, that was, that was Jonah. Uh. All these plagues. I mean, the river turns to blood and the locust and everything else. And the, my favorite plague is the plague of the frogs. I mean, the plague of the frogs is my wife hates frogs. I mean, my, you know, for the beer commercial to appeal to us by having frogs jumping in a boat and going, Wah! you know, my wife, she would never drink if it was up to those frog things. You know, just forget that stuff. You know, she just hates frogs. But the plague of the frogs, and I, I just use my sanctified imagination, you know, because when locusts were there, they were everywhere. When the river was turned to blood, it was everywhere. Everything happened in massive proportions, or as we would say in the church, biblical proportions. And so there are frogs everywhere. I mean, Pharaoh gets out and rolls around in his chariot, and it's just splat, 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 rolling over frogs. That's where they first learned to you cook frog legs, by the way. <laughs> and I mean, he gets up, and, you know, he gets his bowl of Cheerios in the morning. He's about to take a bite out of his bowl of Cheerios, and this little frog comes out of the milk and goes, ribbit, ribbit. <laughs> Pharaoh gets in bed that night, pulls back the covers, all these little frogs going, rip, 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 rip. you know, they're everywhere. Pharaoh finally gets fed up with the frogs. He calls Moses in and he says, Moses, I'm sick of the frogs. I can't stand it anymore. They're driving me crazy. Get rid of these frogs. And Moses said, well, the Lord has told me it's up to you when the frogs are gone. You give the word. You tell me what you want to do. I'll tell the Lord and it will be done. When do you want to get rid of the frogs? Exodus chapter 8 and verse 10. Don't turn to it now. Just look at it later. Man, here's all these frogs. I'm up to my ears in frogs. I can't stand anymore. Would you please get rid of these frogs in my life? I can't stand them anymore. When do you want to get rid of them? And Pharaoh said, tomorrow. <laughs> One more night with the frogs. Uh, me and my frog buddies had a little gig planned over here, and some of you got that gig planned. We, we, we got one more little thing we want to do together, but tomorrow we'll get things straightened out. Tomorrow I'll get this area of my life right. By the way, if you feed your flesh, you starve your spirit. And if you put off what you know you're supposed to do today, you probably won't do it tomorrow. You'll find another reason to put it off for another day. But you see, if you've gotten a glimpse of the Lord Jesus, and in that glimpse He has saved you, and in gazing at Him, He has sanctified you, then giving up the frogs is not a problem. Because why would I want to hold on to hatred and strife and enmities and jealousy and disputes and dissensions? Why would that be any appeal to me 
when I could have love and joy and peace and self-control and kindness. <laughs> There's no comparison. Because when I see what God offers me over here, I realize what a bum deal I've been getting over here. And so although the flesh dies hard, you don't have to give in to it because it doesn't control you. You control it under the power of the Holy Spirit. I want us to bow our heads. In the moment, we're going to have an invitation. But I'm going to ask Eddie and Marlisa to come up if they would, please. I want them to sing right now.